This is Killer Innovations, a show about ideas, creativity, and how you can innovate. Welcome to the Innovator's Garage, where you learn to create your next game-changing killer innovation. Hello, I'm Phil McKinney, and welcome. So how was your week? Mine was absolutely great. Um, As an innovation guy, I feel the pressure to walk the talk. And taking risk is part of the game. I was up at Keystone this last week. I host an annual event up there for about 800 people on tech and on innovation. And now part of my role is to give a keynote. Mostly it's a keynote about 10 years in the future. Now the problem is I've given that same keynote eight times. And this time, at the last minute, I decided to try something different. And I pulled out of the hat what I call now an improv keynote. Now, I asked the audience, remember, there's about 800 people there, to text in one-word topics. And I would take the first 10 and weave them into a 30-minute keynote live and on stage. Surprisingly, though, there was 109 topics submitted from the audience. Now, I get the usual tech topics, you know, cloud computing and mobile devices, etc. But some joker submitted a topic of disco thinking that they were going to throw me for a loop. Now, little did they know, but I was a disco DJ in the 70s. Uh, Yes, there probably are some blackmail photos somewhere out there. And in fact, traveled around the U.S. and I did large youth events. Um, In my opinion, the improv keynote came off great, and I survived taking a risk. At Killer Innovations, we're all about ideas, creativity, and innovations, and encouraging you to take the risk and try Now, how do you get over the self-doubt of stepping out and trying something new? One is by learning from others who have done it, kind of borrowed courage. By listening to this show and through the guests we bring on the show, through other learning materials such as other podcasts, online courses, blogs, workshops. Second, you actually have to step out and take the risk. Try it. Start small, build up to it. Now, I know it's scary. Now, I rarely get nervous before I talk. You can go out to YouTube. You can search for my name. And there's probably a couple hundred of my speeches that are sitting out there on YouTube someplace. But stepping out and doing an improv keynote had me on edge, truly nervous for the first time in a long time. And it turned out great. It was well worth the risk. So the whole point here is, is you can sit around and talk about innovation, but you actually got to get out there and actually do it. So what's the theme for this week's show? This week's show, we're going to talk about measuring innovation. One of the most common emails I get is about how do you measure it? And one of the common questions I get is, can you measure innovation? Is this something that you can truly measure and therefore know know, what I would correlate to be goodness? Now, some believe that you cannot be measured. Innovation just is not something that's something that you can actually put a yardstick to and tell you whether you're doing it right or wrong. And then they correlate that to, therefore, it can't be managed. Innovation is the result of accidental discoveries. That's kind of what rolls around in their head, and I don't buy that view. Innovation can be measured, and innovation can be managed. Now, are there a set of metrics? Well, let's face it. There aren't a lot of really good metrics out there. Um, You know, people have tried a variety of different ways. And Wall Street forces a set of metrics that are, in my mind, meaningless and not complete, such as R&D as a percentage of revenue being a single metric that Wall Street tries to say 
you're doing good or you're not doing so good on your R&D. Now, it's actually been proven that R&D as a percentage of revenue is not really predictive of future R&D success because there's so many other things that you have to take into account that's going to have a positive impact on R&D. Yet, when you look at the share price for public companies, investors reward companies with a share price that is far beyond their book value. They're rewarding for intangibles. It's that expectation that companies will continue to invent new and better products and better services. Now, some of the more common metrics used by companies today, as we just talked about, R&D as a percentage of revenue. Now, there's wide variability by industries. And again, it's not very predictive. There's actually some very good Harvard Business case studies on this using a single metric. Um, if you want to go out and search for those, or if I uh, go back and find them, I'll try to put those into the show notes. There's also percentage of revenue from new products. This is what those of us in the innovation game call the 3M metric. Um, 3M is very big on constantly churning their product line and bringing out new products all the time. The third is patent quality. How good is your patent portfolio? Um, this is done, it used to be referred to as the Chai Index. So if you had a patent and your patent is referenced by a number of other patents, you would have a higher Chai Index, um, meaning that your patent was more valuable because there's a bunch of other patents being invented by others that actually list yours as being foundational or prior art. So patent quality is a good metric. Uh, percentage of time executives spend on innovation. If the CEO and your senior executives are walking around saying innovation is important, um, how much time do they really spend on it? You know, is it worth 1% of their time? Is it worth 5% of their time? Is it worth 10% of their time? Now, I'm not talking about them sitting around and having somebody come in and present the status of the R&D plan or the innovation pipeline. What I'm talking about here is, is our senior executives who are actively engaged, thinking about ideas, thinking about um, uh, projects, helping to provide input on projects, sitting in and getting briefed on a more regular basis, uh, you know, getting their feet wet, not sitting in their, their corner office. So how much time do your executives spend on innovation? And then the last is spend of R&D. Now, not all spend is good spend. You know, it doesn't automatically correlate that there is a, that a dollar spent by Executive A is spent just as widely as a dollar spent by Executive B. So what I always try to do is, when I come into an organization or I'm helping advise a management team is follow the money. Now, for innovators, the challenge is, is how do you put together a metric that your leadership team will accept and can buy into, or one that you'll just use if you happen to be a CEO or a founder um, at a company? Now, it depends on who you have to convince. The CEO is interested in vision, total number of ideas in the pipeline. Um, is there something in there that's exciting? In the case of the CFO, it's all around the financial. So... You know, can you create some kind of a financial metric that the CFO gets comfortable with? In the case of the CTO, be careful. You don't want to threaten their ego. They're supposed to be that person who is supposed to be creating the ideas. And then also, don't forget about legal. We all can make our lawyer jokes. Legal's there basically to manage the risk. 
Now, the metric that I worked for me at HP when I was CTO there was what I called R&D impact, which was gross margin for every dollar of R&D. So the metric was for every dollar of R&D, three years later, the product decisions that we made, what was the margin that that specific product generated? And we actually measured that on a product basis. And it turned out to be very predictive, both of finding good leaders, but also finding good R&D spend. So my advice is you need to find a metric that works for you and you need to find people who think and can and that do it well and ask them. So go out and find somebody who you think is a real innovation leader and ask for their advice. And don't be shy. Use LinkedIn. Find a company that you think is doing uh, R&D effectively very well and, and find out how they do it. Find out if that can be applied to your business because guess what? Every organization and leaders are different. And that's where we come into today's guest. Today's guest is one who has dug in deep into finding a set of metrics that identify companies whose share price is influenced by how innovative they are. And he looks at it from an investor's shareholder perspective. So this is different than you managing it internally. This guest today will share with us how he is an investor from the outside who specializes at looking at companies from the standpoint of how they invest in their people, they invest in their innovation, they, they invest in a, in a couple of key areas, and how he uses that to predict those companies that are going to have um, the most uh, largest growth, better, best share price, and where he's going to look at it. So. Stay tuned. If you're looking to learn more about ideas, creativity, innovation, the metrics, text the word INNOVATE to 33444. If you're outside the U.S., you can just send an, an email to innovate at currentinnovations.com, and I'll send you a two-hour audio course, and that helps you really get the foundation of what we're all talking about. Now, um, so again, you can text the word INNOVATE to 33444, and uh, you can, uh, and this is something that I just give away for free. Um, you'll get the download, or you can go to Amazon, I guess, and pay the $19 the publisher's charging for the same course. I'm giving it away for free, because I think it'll be really good to lay the foundation. So, again, stay tuned. The guest today has got some great insight on the measurements. I'm Phil McKinney, and this is Killer Innovations on the BizTalk Radio Network. This is Killer Innovations, a show about ideas, creativity, and how you can innovate. Welcome to the Innovator's Garage, where you learn to create your next game-changing killer innovation. So do you ever look at others who are successful and say, boy, are they just lucky? A favorite Zig Ziglar quote of mine is, you were born to win, but to be a winner, you must plan to win, prepare to win, and expect to win. Now, the corollary is, is if you fail to plan, then you're planning to fail. I'm Phil McKinney, and you're listening to Killer Innovations. So how do organizations plan to win? By making investments that they think will put them into a leadership position in their industry. 
And today's guest is somebody that takes a look at it from the outside, from an investor's perspective, and looks at it from shareholders' view of identifying those companies who are doing the innovation right. So, Steve, welcome to the show. Thank you, Phil. Thanks for having me. No problem. Hey, Steve, why don't you just give us a quick 60-second radio commercial for you and what it is you do? Sure, and I'll, I'll try to keep it under that. We're an investment firm located in Denver, Colorado. We manage about $600 million. We have ETFs, mutual funds, and separately managed accounts. And our investment strategy is based on the hypothesis that highly innovative companies generate excess returns in the long run. And so we're trying to convert this abstract theory, again, that highly innovative companies generate superior risk-adjusted investment results, into portfolio results for investors. Uh, we're pioneers in the field of of innovation investing. Uh, we're the only firm that bases its, innova- uh, its investment strategy on evaluating companies on the basis of their knowledge investments. And we've created a proprietary method to recalculate historic operating performance uh, for companies incorporating their knowledge investments. So, you know, there's a lot of people out there that have all tried to take a look at least at innovation as being highly valuable. But, you know, in the case of, of your work and just the general investment population, why should we care? Do, is innovation really that important from the standpoint of the share price? Why, is it, why should the listener care? Well, you know, we recently uh, wrote a white paper uh, describing what we call the knowledge effect. And in essence, uh, there's an anomaly in the stock market where companies uh, that are successfully employing an innovation strategy over time, uh, as I mentioned earlier, experience excess returns. And so uh, it's really that these companies employing a consistent innovation strategy uh, over time consistently exceed investors' expectations. And so, you know, the roots of this are are two things. One, our current accounting framework is a somewhat antiquated uh, 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 method of keeping score, especially for highly innovative companies. It's an industrial era uh, kind of system um, that, that really looks at companies from the standpoint of assuming that they buy their capital from somebody else, like an industrial company would, rather than building it themselves. And so the act of building a, a firm specific capital stock is poorly captured by accounting standards. And what's ironic is that FASB, the Financial Accounting Standards Board, put this in place, forcing companies to expense all of their knowledge investments in 1974, three years after Intel launched the first commercially available semiconductor, thereby launching us into the digital age. And so, we have this issue where uh, accounting standards really are not meant for highly innovative companies, and they distort the information uh, uh, to investors and, and really rob investors of value-relevant information about company uh, innovative investment. And it's this absence of information that leads to this behavioral bias, this anomaly in the stock market. And so really, uh, uh, the most innovative companies do well um, because there's a dearth of information, and investors lurch from you know, overly penalizing a company when they're in when they're in the investment phase, to then you know outrageously rewarding a company when 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 they're past that investment phase, um, and and so that that's the essence of uh, of the knowledge effect and, and how we tend to look at at innovation from an investment standpoint. 
So is, is there directly a correlation? Do, do you have the, does that evidence suggest that companies that pursue this strategy rather than just doing, you know, managing it to, the, to what you have to report on the quarter, do they do better from the standpoint of a share price today? Well, you know, Phil, I, I think it's important to recognize that, you know, the, the whole premise here is that um, intangible investments, R&D, brand development, employee training, um, are all value-relevant activities. And so, from the standpoint of the manager that's allocating capital for these things, the manager likely, likely thinks of these endeavors as investment, that they are, that these are, they're developing assets for the firm, and, and, and in turn, these assets will generate um, income in the future. And so, uh, uh, FASB's decision in 1974 really severed the link between those two things and, and again, created this vacuum. And so, uh, uh, NYU professor Baruch Lev was really the first one to dive into this issue in 1993. And in his work, he found a statistically significant relationship between the amount of intellectual property that a company has and its subsequent stock price performance. He refined that idea in 2005 to, to address your specific question and say, really that in an absolute sense, more innovation or less innovation is not the key. It's contextualizing that innovation within respective industries. And so he took all companies in, in a variety of industries and looked at uh, uh, each company relative to its industry and determined relative to its industry which companies spent the most on innovation. And, and, and that was a quantitative way to flesh out the idea that within any given industry, there are companies that are pursuing a deliberate innovation strategy, and then there are companies companies pursuing a mimicking strategy that are just trying to, let's say, capitalize on the, the, the intellectual property spillovers going on in an industry. Um, and so, um, uh, you know, again, we, we believe there's a connection. It's not necessarily a direct, linear, one-for-one -one connection. Uh, it, it's, it's, a, it, it's a relationship that tends to play out um, o over time, and it's a, a communication flow between what companies are doing, why they're doing it, how the information is presented to shareholders and how shareholders interpret that information. So is there a specific time frame during which, you know, these companies that are doing the investments could outperform? Because innovation and investment don't last forever. It's one of those, it's the monster you have to constantly feed. No, that's that's a fantastic point, Phil. And, you know, were this anomaly to exist in perpetuity, then kind of by definition, it wouldn't necessarily be an anomaly. And so what the academic literature suggests is that, you know, there tends to be a five-year window after a company um, makes an intangible investment or or increases its, its rate of intangible investment um, where that excess return plays out. And it tends to be a, a, a two-phase thing where at first the company are, are in the investment phase, and investors see all the expenses, but they don't see any earnings or, or, or revenues to show for it. But then, you know, a couple of years hence, companies manifest new products, and, and revenues and earnings begin to be produced, uh, and, and then all of a sudden, investors tend to, you know, overreact to that uh, to that kind of news. So, uh, again, just to, to sum it up, it tends to be a five-year window after companies engage in intangible investments. Um, where investors will have a lag reaction uh, uh, to that information. 
Well, that, that's that's great given the time frame. Hey, Steve, stay right where you're at. We're not done. In the next segment, we're going to talk about companies that are leaders, ones that are laggards. And I'm going to ask Steve also to give us kind of his three recommendations. If you're a leader, how do you think about your investment strategies to account for kind of this investor's perspective? I'll be posting links to Steve and his firm in the show notes at Conovations.com. That's also where you can find the past shows and you can catch up with everything that we're doing. Biz Talk Radio. is Killer Innovations, a show about ideas, creativity, and how you can innovate. Welcome to the Innovator's Garage, where you learn to create your next game-changing killer innovation. While many companies work hard to create a culture of innovation, and believe me, it's one of the more common activities I see going on in organizations today, some believe that doing the same thing they've done in the past is their path to success. Well, not me. I'm a believer of the Robert Collier School of Thinking, which is if you don't make things happen, then things will happen to you. So we're picking up in this segment where we left off in the last segment with uh, talking about the uh, the knowledge uh, worker or the knowledge index from the standpoint of uh, investment and from an investor's perspective of those investments that actually have a positive impact on organizations. So, Steve, you measure companies' innovation activities and then screen for the most highly innovative. You kind of bucketize them into what you kind of call knowledge leaders. And there's also companies that, I guess, don't make the cut. I don't know what you call them, knowledge laggards, I guess. Followers. So talk us through kind of that, uh, that th- those kind of buckets. How do you do that? And what, what are some examples of those companies? Sure. Um, We use our knowledge-adjusted framework here. So we begin with roughly 3,000 companies around the world, and we take their financial history, and we convert it into a knowledge-adjusted financial history by going in and capitalizing all of their identifiable um, intellectual property investments, things like advertising, research and development, and we have some proprietary ways of then extracting uh, investments in brand development or employee training. And so once we have a modified uh, set of financial statements going back for for 30 years for all 3,000 companies, we apply a few screening criteria. And and the companies that uh, meet all the thresholds in our screen uh, that then pass the test and we consider them knowledge leaders. And so there's a few, you know, general criteria that that we're looking for. You know, we need to see a company invest at least 5% of sales in intellectual property. Uh, We need to see a company have at least 5% of their assets represented by intellectual property. And then we'll also look for, you know, minimum other operating metrics like profit margins. Uh, We'll only look at companies with at least 20% gross profit margins. Uh, We'll only look at companies with, you know, a a 10% operating cash flow margin or above. And then we'll only look at companies uh, below 50% net financial leverage. And the logic for that is that, you know, when companies move to an innovation strategy, um, it, it tends to represent a drop in capital intensity for the company. And in 
innovation investments tend to be equity financed. And so when we see all of those variables line up, um, uh, that's the kind of company that, that those are the kind of companies that pass our screens. And so, you know, as you might imagine, uh, many of the companies that, 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 that pass these screens and, and are in our knowledge leader indexes um, are in, say, the healthcare and technology industries. But we also have some in the uh, consumer products, advanced industrial, um, some basic material industries like chemicals and things of that nature. Um, so at the same time, you know, there are companies that, that don't meet the criteria for one reason or another. And so, you know, an industry that might help um, illustrate this would be, uh, would be the pharmaceutical industry. So, you know, companies that most people are probably familiar with, branded drug companies like Eli Lilly or Bristol-Myers, these are all knowledge leaders. But then there are companies in the pharma industry like Mylan, who's a generic drug company that tends to follow a mimicking strategy that doesn't make the cut. So uh, it, it really, each industry has its own dynamic, but um, that pharmaceutical example is a great idea, a great example of uh, the kinds of companies that are innovation-led companies that, that, that pass our screens and the kinds of companies that are mimicking companies that don't. So, Steve, give us some examples of companies that are kind of on the way into or out of the uh, knowledge leader status. Well, let, let, me, let, me, let me focus on the companies that are on their way out. I wish I, was, I wish my crystal ball was working so well recently to predict which ones would make it in. But what I can tell you is a couple companies that um, have fallen out of our index, uh, Sony and, and BlackBerry would be, would be two examples. And I think that the issue here was not that they stopped investing in intellectual property, um, rather that they uh, uh, failed to execute on their innovation strategies. And, and whether it was intentionally or unintentionally, they, they really fell into a mimicking strategy. And so this showed up for us as, um, as some of their operating metrics failing to hit some of our required thresholds. In particular, operating cash flow margins and return on invested capital fell below our required levels. And so, you know, we want to see companies that spend uh, dollars on innovation on the, on, on the front end, but who then on the back end generate, you know, very attractive rates of return, earnings and, 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 and revenues for investors. This gives us a way to kind of connect the input with the output and say the companies that are successfully innovating, you know, are generating the, the operating cash flow and the earnings on the back end. So when we see companies like Sony or BlackBerry um, fall off that pace, it gives us some quantitative um, metrics to, to, to follow that tell us these companies have fallen off the innovation strategy. And to be clear, we'll look at the trailing seven years average of their operating cash flow, their return on invested capital. Um, so it's not just one bad year. It's a, you know, it really requires a company to get into a multi-year bad slump. Um, so Sony is probably our best candidate to, you know, to pull out of that relative to BlackBerry. They've get, gotten back on track with their profitability metrics, um, but now they really need to do a little balance sheet repair. Um, uh, when a company falls off the innovation track, um, oftentimes it resorts to uh, its balance sheet and the taking on debt to plug the hole in the interim. And so Sony fell into that, into that trap as well. And so now that they've gotten back on the, you know, the operating performance path, they need to address the balance sheet. And so I would expect, you know, at some point in the near future, uh, with a couple balance sheet moves, that, that Sony should find its way back into knowledge leader status. Well, that's, that's some good insight. So from the standpoint of a leader within 
companies that pride themselves or who you know try to are trying to use an innovation strategy for their long-term success. Can you give us three things that that they should be thinking about that will help them in their business from the standpoint of how they think about it from an investor's perspective and how you um, in the market look at companies? What are those three things that, that the listener can kind of take away? Yeah, that's that's a that's a great question, Phil. Um, I, I think the, the the first thing is you know an understanding that um, the accounting framework that uh, that, that is employed um, is really flawed uh, when it comes to representing the activities of innovative companies, and um, it does a really poor job of 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 communicating what's going on in the inside of a company to investors on the outside. So so that's item number one: recognizing that our accounting framework. Uh, is flawed and 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 does a poor job representing innovative companies. No, number two is that you know accounting conventions are a communication medium between your company and its shareholders. And so you know while you as the CEO of a company may have a perspective on how you're allocating capital, looking at it as you know very intelligent investment that will lead to value creation in in, in the future and, and and you know is very logical. From the standpoint of your shareholders, um, that intent may not get communicated. Per- Perfectly uh, via our flawed uh, accounting system, and so um, I, I think that you know sharing this perspective with investors is, is important. Meaning that the perspective that you have as the manager of your business on how you're allocating capital, and, and in that, I think it's important for a manager to realize that investors tend to look at um, a, a company from a diversification standpoint. You know, it's a well-worn financial idea that you can buy assets that have offsetting risks, um, so as to minimize your exposure to any single risk. Well, you know, uh, investors like to hear that a manager of a business is looking at their portfolio of R&D projects uh, or innovation projects in the same way. So, communicating to investors that um, you don't expect every project to be a raging success, but that you're looking at this like a portfolio of projects that, in aggregate, you have a vision for value creation. Um, And then the last thing uh, would be to simply say that, you know, even though FASB doesn't mandate companies giving a lot of information about their innovative activities, you know, more information is better, more transparency is better, and in general, uh, more information about your innovative activities and about your companies, the more likely it is that your company will experience excess returns as investors get a more complete picture uh, of what exactly your vision is. Yeah, I think those those are all excellent uh, points. I think all of us can just pay, maybe pay a little bit more attention. So, Steve, if people want to follow what you're doing, how can they find you? Sure, Phil. Um, our website is uh, GaveCal, G-A-V-E-K-A-L, Capital, C-A-P-I-T-A-L dot com, GaveCalCapital dot com. Um, we have our, our white papers and material displayed on our website, and uh, we, we would uh, certainly be happy to, uh, uh, to, to field any information requests from, uh, from anybody about, uh, uh, about our thoughts on innovation. Great. Thanks, Steve. I really, I really appreciate it. If you want to stay and get connected with us here at Conovations, text the word INNOVATE, 33444, or drop us an email at INNOVATE at Um As we go into the, the, the last segment for the show, as you know, we've gotten the habit of I present these killer questions that will hack your brain. I'm Phil McKinney, and this is Killer Innovations on the BizTalk Radio Network.
Talk Radio. is Killer Innovations, a show about ideas, creativity, and how you can innovate. Welcome to the Innovator's Garage, where you learn to create your next game-changing killer innovation. So how are you doing with your creative muscle exercises? Last week's challenge was to identify five unshakable beliefs your company has about your customers, and for each of those unshakable beliefs, whether they be myth or real, generate five ideas that you believe were not true. And what I mean by unshakable beliefs is things that people will say that your customers always like something or will never like something or they will always do or never do. You're looking for those and you're trying to find ways around or try to break those unshakable beliefs. So did you do your homework? My objective is to give you challenges that's going to cause you to exercise that creative muscle. So get out your moleskin or whatever you use to capture your ideas, whether you use the Evernote app on your phone or even if you write it on the back of napkins and carry it with you and get in the habit of writing down whatever inspires you, whatever frustrates you, or even if you have to, even if you're writing down ideas from somebody else, uh, just capture it and then you, that gives you the opportunity to go back and use it. Now, as the weeks go by, it will become easier. Now, Questions, you keep hearing me say that questions are a mind hack. Your brain cannot stop itself from answering a question when it's posed. So what's the mind hack for this week? What features of my product create unanticipated passion? What features of my product create unanticipated passion? Now, what I mean by unanticipated passion is is that you're doing something that customers actually find as being essential, and they would actually refuse to let your business die. Now, imagine that kind of passion for what you do. And imagine a, a, a broad customer base that is that emotionally invested in what it is you're doing, to, you know, and to the point of taking on huge uh, effort to, to keep your business alive long after common sense and after the board declares maybe the business should be done with. What I'm talking about is what's called the impossible project. And it's currently doing what Polaroid Company's instant film division couldn't do. In 2008, two men, one of them a longtime Polaroid employee and the other a committed fan of analog photography, uh, heard that Polaroid was getting out of the instant film business. And they said no. And they bought up all of the relevant machinery, they leased the plant from Polaroid, and they rounded up the core employees who had been laid off to work in the instant film division to come up with and replace that product. And basically, they set out to try to recreate what Polaroid had been shipping for some time. Now, on a rational level, the Polaroid film is an obsolete product. It's kind of run its course. But on an emotional level, it's what I refer to as a warm product, which means that it's something that... A substantial number of fans have a deep emotional rather than logical connection to. You need proof, just go out to a Facebook page and look at how many digital photos are recreated, kind of making it look like the old Polaroids. Now, corporate reasoning is that you just can't continue on producing obsolete products. The technology and market had changed. But the Impossible Project was able to do is to isolate the elements of instant film business that still had value and leverage that from the standpoint of that fan base. Now... 
The Impossible Project film comes at a premium price. It's up to $3 per exposure. And they're open to the fact that the films and the dyes used in them are experimental because they don't have really access to all the original formulas. And so, therefore, they offer unpredictable results. And it doesn't deliver lifelike colors. And the, the end result really depends on temperature and how good the photographer is and their natural skill set. So... Uh, now, if you grew up in the 70s, 80s, and 90s, like I did, and you were a little bit artsy, you remember playing around with Polaroid and making all those um, great uh, uh, films and cutting the emulsion and creating what, what I refer to as a reverse image on pieces of paper. Um, well, I, I don't know how many cancer-causing chemicals I may have in my body after all those experiments. But it's, a, it's surprising that Polaroid was unable to understand or leverage the customer's love. I mean, what customer would actually go out and buy your factory and hire the employees to recreate what you as a company couldn't achieve? It's that emotional bond with customers that's essential to creating a must-have product. Now, it's tempting to think that this link only happens organically, but you can forge this connection in a strategic manner. So how? Ask yourself, what are the features that have elicited the strongest emotional response from your customers? And how do you ensure these are carried forward both in your current and future products? And, and last, how do you avoid killing the passion? One is don't do the stupid stuff that a lot of companies do. So as a reminder, this week's killer question is, what features of my product create that unanticipated passion? So this week's creative muscle exercise is to come up with three features of your product or service that elicits passions from your customers. And if you don't have any, then you better start working on ones that do. And you may have ones that you don't know about. Get up, get out of your home or your office, go talk to your customers, take on the mission of finding three. The long-term objective is not to become Polaroid, where you ignore that passion and let the product die. So find those passions, feed it, don't kill it. So get your notebook out and exercise your creative muscle. Share your homework by sending it to me at phil at killinnovations.com, and I'll share the best on the show. If you mark it private, I won't share it, but I will reply. I reply to every email I get, or, and so therefore send it in, and you'll hear back from me uh, with my thoughts on your idea. And don't think you only have the one week. If you're listening to this podcast after the broadcast date, go ahead, do the homework, and send it in. Now, what it is is go ahead and do it. Sitting here listening to me talk about it, not all that helpful. A few years back, I created a two-hour audio course on how to create co-innovation that's on Amazon and sells for something like $19, which I think is outrageous. So I've decided to give it away, digital download for free. So you can just text the word innovate to 33444. And if you're outside the U.S., just send an email to innovate at co-innovations.com, and I'll send you an email with all the links to download it for free, no charge, no obligation. While you're on it, make sure to check out co-innovations.com. Um, it's a place where you can check out and meet up with other innovators. Also, don't miss out on the other great shows on BizTalk Radio over at biztalkradio.com. While you're there, grab the mobile app, and you can listen to Kill Innovations live. If you know an innovator has a story that others should hear, drop me a note at phil at killinnovations.com. And uh, I do, do appreciate, and I am looking for feedback. Let us know what you think of the show, if you've got guests you think we should have in the show, and therefore uh, can... Uh, can invite them on to share their story so that all can learn and listen. Again, thank you for listening. We'll talk to you next week. 
This is Phil McKinney, and you're listening to Killer Innovations. The opinions you hear on Biz Talk Radio are those of the hosts, callers, and guests, and do not necessarily reflect those of this station, Biz Talk Radio, its management, or advertisers. The information on Biz Talk Radio does not constitute a recommendation, offer, or solicitation to buy or sell any product or service. If you have any questions about Biz Talk Radio, contact us at 817-274-1609 or at biztalkradio.com. Biz Talk Radio. 